thank you, Aaron, and uh, worship team. We appreciate you guys. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts. And uh, last week, we began a new uh, group of messages as we're walking, working uh, on the subject of the book of Acts, where we'll be for quite some time. As we talk about the New Testament church, and we talk about the life of, of a follower of Jesus. Last week, I shared with you that I believe that the book of Acts gives you and I a very clear picture of what the life of a believer should look like. It gives us a life picture of, of the life of the early church. And the question that we're asking is, how do we get there? If it gives us a picture of the, the life of a believer, if it gives us the picture of what a church should be and, and should do, how do we get back? What are some things along the way that have been lost in the 21st century? And so we talked about some key events last week that took place. We talked about that, the, that Jesus ascended into heaven, that he gave the disciples purpose. We talked about the power of the Holy Spirit. We also talked about the disciples stepping out and ministering with, with boldness. And we wrapped up by talking about Peter, Peter and John. And in the early church, everything was focused on Jesus. I mean, absolutely everything. They knew exactly what he had called them to do. Jesus wasn't like an accessory on their lives. He should never be like a commercial at a church, but he is, he is our everything. And the New Testament church understood this as they moved and they stepped out in what Jesus called them to do. And so today we're going to be talking about the subject uh, of a spirit-empowered Christian community. Next week, we're going to be talking about the, the functions of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll continue on throughout the book of Acts. And so today is still just an, a general overview as we're talking about what this spirit-empowered Christian community looked like. Jesus was with them. He ascended into heaven. He's placed in the grave. He, he comes back and, and... Let's rewind. Jesus died on the cross, placed in the grave. Comes back. He's walking. He's with the disciples. He ascends into heaven. And then we move forward throughout the book of Acts. And we see in Acts, we talked last week that the Holy Spirit came. He filled the 120 that were gathered in the upper room. That many people came. They realized what was taking place. And as they stood out from a distance, there were two groups of people. There were those that were filled with awe and wonder. And then there were those that were basically mocking what was taking place. And it's in that context that Peter steps out and he begins preaching. And the Bible says that there's about 3,000 or so people that the relationship with God is restored. They enter into relationship with Jesus. And now the church has grown from 120 to well over 3,000. And how does it, how do these, this massive group of people go from understanding and, and hearing the gospel that's preached by Peter to becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus? And I think we find the answer in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verses 41 through 47. So that'll be our primary text for today. It said, all those who accepted his message, so that's Peter's message, they were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, so here we see that word again, at many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who has a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. It's interesting that the main portion of this text is kind of sandwiched between two passages of of Scripture that say very similar statements. And the first we see in verse 41 that it says that there are people that are accepting the message that Peter is speaking. He's talking about Jesus. And then we see in verse 47 that the Lord is adding to their number daily those that are being saved. And so it's in this, these two passages of Scripture where it's talking about the church growing numerically that it, we see the definition of a spirit-empowered Christian community. Now, there's a lot that we do today in our, in our American church life and world. You know, we're a culture of energy. We're a culture of extremes, and we're a culture of, of efficiency, and we want to do things differently. We want to kind of share the gospel in creative and innovative ways. A lot of people are looking for the latest and greatest things that, things that work to build a church. And I would say to you that God never called you, nor did he ever call me to build the church. But the overarching theme that I want to challenge you with today is that as we approach this text, that it's more than building, it's about being. I read an article this week that said this. It said, many modern American evangelical churches rest upon the foundation of building something rather than being something. It's easy to read this portion of scripture that if you've been in church, you've heard this preached for sure within the last two years in any church. It's a primary text that pastors speak from. And a lot of times we'll read this text and immediately we say, okay, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. And immediately we think of programs. Okay, we got to build this. We got to build this. We got to build this. We got to build this and it will work. And I would say to you that our foundation for this church should not be something that we focus on building as much as it is being. That you and I are called to be a New Testament church. And I was reading uh, Brad Powell about a week and a half ago. He said this. He said, people are unique creations of God made in his image, but now marred by sin. They can't be mass produced like automobiles or smartphones. Every experienced parent knows this. What works perfectly in raising one child and training and instructing in the ways of the Lord unleashes the devil in the next. It takes very different models of child rearing to successfully fulfill the different God-given mission of parenting. He says the same thing is true about the God-given mission of making disciples. One size doesn't fit all. And so now there's 3,000 people in the New Testament church. How did they become fully devoted followers of Jesus. We see this in the spirit-empowered Christian community, a spirit-empowered Christian church. Now, it's important that when you hear the word church, it's important for us to realize that in the New Testament, the, the Bible doesn't link the word church with buildings. It links it, the word church with people. If you were to take the average Joe in our town today, drive him through State College, you'd say, show me where the local church is, they would point to structures, they would point to brick and mortar, they would point to facilities, but the Bible calls the people of God, the ecclesia, say ecclesia, it's just a great word, ecclesia, the people of God, that's the church. What is the ecclesia? Well, the Bible says that we are people that are called out. What are we called out of? Well, First Peter chapter 2 says that we're chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, As to show forth the glory of God, he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
John chapter 17 says that we are in the world, but we're really not in the world. We're not of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Romans 10 says we don't conform by the pattern of this world. We're called out. We're separated. We are set apart. And so the examples that we see for this word uh, church, the ecclesia in scripture is kind of three different layers or meanings. And this is important for us to understand just kind of at a foundational level. The first we see is in, a, first is in Ephesians 1.23 where Paul says that God, having raised Christ Jesus from the dead above all rule and authority, put all things under his feet and made him head over all things for the church, which is his body. And so the first ecclesia word that we see is for the church universal. It's believers that are in central Pennsylvania. It's people that are followers of Jesus around the world. It's the ecclesia. It's the people that are called out, the universal church. Acts chapter 11, verse 22 gets a little bit more specific where it refers to the church in Jerusalem. It's a geographical area. We see this as well in the church of Corinth, that it's a local body of believers, that when God looks down upon a city, upon a region, he doesn't see buildings. He sees the people of God that are called out, and they're in a variety of different uh, expressions or gatherings that we would see together today as a church. The other meaning that we see is in Colossians 4.15. Paul sends greetings to Nympha in, in the church in her home. Paul writes the letter to Philemon. It's addressed to the ecclesia. It's the church that was meeting in a home. And so we have the church universal. We have the church geographic kind of in a region. And then we see gatherings that are taking place in a smaller environment. It's the context that we see the word church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, the more genuine and deeper a community of believers become, the more everything else between us recede and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ. And yet through Christ we have one another holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, for all of eternity. And so we see this church in the book of Acts. These people that are called out, they're separated, they're, they're followers of Jesus. And the Bible describes three commitments and I would say three characteristics of the early church. And the first commitment that we see is in verse 42. It says that they're devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, basically to doctrine. That these people were devoted to the teachings and the, the doctrine of the apostles, who were the bearers, they were the carriers of divine revelation that the Bible says was confirmed by signs and wonders. And that kind of authenticated the fact that these people were the spokesmen of God. And the early church was committed and devoted to the teaching and the doctrine of the apostles. It was these same men that we see the New Testament being written that we study and we live by today. And the challenge for so many is that you would ask people the question today, here we are so many thousand years later, you'd say to someone, where do you study the Bible? Are you someone that's devoted to God's word? And their response typically as a Christian for so many would say, well, yeah, I, I do. I study the scriptures. And you'd say, what does that look like? To which the response would be that I go to church. And I would say to you this, as much as I love speaking from God's word, I love teaching from God's word, if that becomes your primary kind of source of spiritual nourishment each and every week, I don't believe that you can become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. 
that there's so much more than just coming to church and, and hearing a 20 to 30 minute message each and every week. What would happen to your physical body if you decided, you know what, one day a week, I'm going to eat lunch. One day a week, I'll just eat breakfast. Your body would wither up and you would die. What would happen if you said, you know what, once a month or every other week, I'll get out of bed and I'll actually exercise. I'll leave the house and I'll walk around. You realize that you'd be physically exhausted. And I would say to you, just as exercise and food is to our body, so is spending time in God's word on a consistent and regular basis to our soul. It's something that you and I must dig deeply into each and every day of our lives for us to become fully devoted followers of Jesus and to grow spiritually. God's word is what we use to renew our minds. The Bible says that we're quickened by the word of God, that it's like a, a light that directs the path in front of us. It was Jesus that said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Bible is described like a hammer in the book of Jeremiah that breaks apart the pieces of our lives that need to, need to be broken. It's like a seed. First Peter says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. That God's word is like a double-edged sword, that it's even sharper than a double-edged sword, that it penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. The book of James says that when we spend time in God's word, that it's like a mirror. It says don't merely listen to the word of God, but do what it says. This early church, they became fully devoted followers of Jesus because they were committed to the teaching of the apostles. And my heart for you as the pastor of this church is that you learn to grow on your own. That as much as we spend time on Sundays in God's word, there's nothing like opening your Bible on a Monday morning. There's nothing like taking time Tuesday afternoon as you're eating lunch and saying, God, would you speak to me out of your word today? that it's so much more than, than a Sunday thing, that it's in each and every day of our lives. Lord, would you give me a passage of scripture that would carry me throughout this week? Lord, would you equip me and would you enable me with, with, with some wisdom from your word that you'll end up using Friday as you're praying with someone at work or at the grocery store? This is where your faith in Jesus gets exciting, that when you spend time in God's word and say, Lord, as I open your word today, God, would you speak to me through your word? It's absolutely amazing how many times he will pull out passages of scripture and he will equip you and you'll be prepared for something that's going to take place later on in the week. Has that happened to you? If so, say yes. So it's not just me. It happens. But you and I must be people that are devoted by the word of God that you learn over time to grow on your own. The second commitment that we see is in the same verse that it was more than just them being devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they were devoted to this concept of fellowship. They were devoted to one another. As you read the book of Acts, they're constantly getting together. They're constantly spend spending time with one another. There's this strong sense of community, a strong sense of togetherness. They're meeting in homes. They're sharing meals this word has kind of a twofold meaning because in the meals, they would obviously they would spend time eating food with one another. They would eat what we would see as a, a typical meal, but then there would be this element where they would receive communion together in their homes, the sacrament of, of Holy Communion. And this is so critical and important 
to the life of this church, that we understand the reality that God has called us to this commitment of fellowship. And it's more than just getting together and having fun. Last Sunday after church, uh, Lori Jordan coordinated a uh, lunch for all of the greeters. And so we had this potluck deal, and, and it was just so fun. In the afternoon, we had, you know, probably 25, maybe 30 people with kids. Everybody brought food, and we had it over at the Ray's house, and there was just this ungodly amount of food. And so we got together after church, and we ate for probably an hour or so, and then I got up and uh, wanted to talk about gluttony, but I decided to talk about hospitality and greeting. And so we had a couple questions and answers, and then we just spent another hour, hour and a half, two hours, just hanging out and spending time together, and it was awesome. And I got home, it was late in the afternoon, Thursday, or Sunday. It was so good that I forgot what day it was on. And so I got home, and uh, you would have thought that I was exhausted. I mean, we had a long day, just so many details with coming here early, setting up the church, spending time after, hanging out, socializing, everything like that. And and when we got home after uh, the gathering of just coming together with a hospitality group, I, I was like on cloud nine. I mean, I came home, I was just so full of life and energy and excitement because we were talking and we were hearing about what God was doing in our lives and just being encouraged and inspiring and challenging one another. And unfortunately, this is something that I believe has become lost in the 21st century. And it's something that you and I need to realize that God has not called you and I to be people that live in isolation, to be people that live alone. But this word, this deep theological word for fellowship is koinonia. And it's the commitment that we see in marriage. It's the commitment of spiritual togetherness, partnership, shared activity. This same word for fellowship, koinonia, is actually used to describe our relationship with Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, God is faithful by whom you are called into koinonia, fellowship, of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This same word is also used to describe the relationship that we're supposed to have with the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13, 14. It says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the koinonia, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you. The same theological word that's used to describe our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with the Holy Spirit is now the word that's being used to describe the spiritual element of partnership, of commitment, of fellowship that the early church had, this strong sense of them being together. And the question that I would ask you is, when's the last time you've had a family over to your house for a meal? When was the last time you got together with someone from this church for lunch and you spent quality time? Because this has been lost in our culture today. Meals to so many families are just simply eating food. And that concept was very foreign to this concept of fellowship in the early church. If I were to ask a teenager at the high school today, does your family spend time eating a meal together? They'd say, well, yeah, we do it. It's on Tuesday night. Dad drives to Belfont, you know, at 6 o'clock to pick up Susie from lacrosse practice. While he's in Belfont, mom orders Chinese Mom gets the Chinese, she sits Susie down on the floor with an iPad, puts a movie on, puts Tommy down there with his video games and puts earplugs in because Tommy likes to talk when we eat. Mom spends that time paying bills. And that's what their family concept of eating a meal looks like. And that's foreign to the early church. 
If you see this word fellowship and you, you see this word of spending time eating meals together, that was not the intent of the early church. See, these meals were a time that they spent talking to one another. It's this concept of two individual people actually using their mouths and their ears. That, you know, our culture today, we're in an iPod and iTouch and cell phone culture. It's just like the thing we need to rediscover is talking. Just listening and talking. But it's so, our lives can be so busy that we miss the deep spiritual implications of this concept of fellowship. Some of you parents that are struggling with your teens, you've tried to figure out exactly what's going on in their lives. You search high and wide for the answers. I would say, why not sit down and eat together? Why not just talk? Push things aside. Spend some quality time with one another because this cornonia is not this high and by relationship. It's not coming to church Sunday, you check in, you check out. It's this togetherness that people do life together. And yet, there are so many barriers in our lives to this because I believe this simultaneously attracts and repels us at the same time. We want the life affirming benefits of spiritual togetherness, cornonia, but we're repelled by the commitment that it requires. Things like selfishness. If we're all honest with one another, if I were to sit down and eat lunch with you, I think some of us would say at times we tend to be a little selfish. We think about what's best for me, my family, my schedule, my routine or rhythm of life. And if you're not careful, that element of selfishness can become a barrier. How about lack of commitment? We like to commit to things that have a low level of expectation. But this cornonia concept, that it's more than just a Sunday concept, that there's a large and a significant level of commitment. Maybe it's not that, but it's transparency. That so many are, are okay with getting to know people to a certain degree, but there comes a time where you've got to let your guard down a little bit. You've got to let your guard down and be real and honest with one another. Ask tough questions and really admit that at the end of the day, there's not one person in this room that really has it all together, beginning with me. But so many don't want to get there. They don't want to let their guard down. Maybe it's just that we live in a self-reliant culture. I mean, we have the answers to everything on YouTube. You just get online and you find the answer to it. There's self-help books and so many things so that we can improve and we can fix our lives. But the reality is, and the tough thing for so many, is this idea that you and I, to grow spiritually, it requires us to depend on one another. That can be a huge barrier to many. And yet the barriers aren't the, the gauge that we use to whether or not we decide to pursue what God's called us to. It has everything to do with what he has established in his word, and I believe that our church is supposed to be an environment where we have thriving, deep, significant, and substantial relationships with one another. And yet, there are so many barriers to that. We also see the third commitment is this commitment to prayer that the early church possessed an active prayer life. It wasn't just a ritual, it wasn't a habit. It wasn't a routine or just the thing you do at 8.15 every day. It was their lifeline. It was their lifeline. And it's in this environment of this commitment 
to the apostles' teaching, this commitment to, to cornonia, to fellowship. It's this commitment to prayer that, that these people are becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus. They realized it was their lifeline. It was their link to the Heavenly Father that when they spoke to God, that God would speak to them. And as they draw near to him, as that song was saying earlier, that God draws near to us. But it has to be so much more than our emergency plan or a spare tire. I shared many years ago that I, Corey Tin Boom says that prayer is either your steering wheel or your spare tire. Is it that thing that you kind of pull out of the trunk of your life that all of a sudden you tried to do it on your own, you tried to figure it out on your own, and now all of a sudden your back's up against the wall, you're in a jam, so you pull out prayer? Or is it the thing that you use to literally steer the direction in the course of your day, your week, the decisions you make, the very course of your life, Philippians 4, 6? Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The early church understood this commitment that you and I are called to be people of prayer. A couple weeks ago, it was on a Friday afternoon that during the month of March, as I was trying to get you know, some things established for the church, there was one specific area that I, I had just kind of overlooked and uh, wasn't huge, but it would affect it, uh, all of us. And uh, it wasn't that we like, didn't have a facility or anything like that. But, uh, you know, it's just this thing that was weighing. Do you ever have something that just kind of weighing on your spirit? It's just kind of there, and you wake up, you're thinking about it halfway through the day. It's just kind of there. And I had gone through a couple days like this, and, and on a Friday, it wasn't really on my register, but as I was driving down the road, it just kind of hit me again. And when it hits me, there are two decisions that I think you and I can make in that moment. Uh, one is we tend to think of things and we think problems. Okay, well, what's the solution? You ever have a problem and you're like, okay, well, I'll just pick up the phone. You know, call the right person, figure this thing out, get it done. And there are certainly appropriate times that we're to do that in life. But I remember taking the second route uh, that Friday afternoon because I could have gone the route of just figuring it out. But I remember it, as it hit me, you know, just driving down the road, I just prayed to the Lord for probably just like 30 seconds. And I was like, Lord, you know what? This thing's weighing on me. And, and the more this weighs on me, the more I'm not able to spend time and energy on the things that matter most. And that's ministering and pastoring the people that you've called me to. And for that sake, would you take care of this? And it was just that quick. And about Less than 48 hours later, I wish things, you know, work based on time, and I could promise, you know, but there are times, you know what, it may be 48 days, but, but thank God this time, it was less than 48 hours later, I'm out and about and run into someone, and that said, they said, you know what, we were thinking last Sunday or last Monday about one particular thing for the church, and we wanted to make sure that it was taken care of, and it was the exact same thing that five days later I had been wrestling with, it had been weighing on my heart and mind, and the Lord responded to that five days before I even prayed that prayer to God. But what happens, and how many times do we miss those moments in our lives because we just want to figure out the answer? We'll just make it work, whatever that looks like. The New Testament church understood that prayer was their lifeline, and they just constantly were presenting their needs to God. The Bible says that he was doing great things in their midst. Three simple characteristics that we see. 
Number one is in verse 45. It says that they're selling their property and possessions. They're giving to one another as they had a need. There was this idea of selflessness. There was this idea of selflessness when they realized that the power of God was so evident because you can realize this in the early church. The power of God and what he was doing in their midst was so evident because he was more important than their earthly possessions. You know God's moving in a group or a body of people when their earthly possessions are not as important as the needs that are among themselves, the relationships that they have with one another. This body of believers, they're ministering to each other. They're taking care of one another. They're selling property, possessions. They're giving the proceeds to those people that had need among them. These people that it's referring specifically to that needed assistance. Last week I talked about that this group of about 150,000 that had swelled to well over a million people at that particular time. And so when these people accept the message of Jesus, there were over 3,000 Most scholars believe that they didn't return home for a period of time, but they stayed in that area. And so they had real needs. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have places to live. Obviously, if there's 3,000 people that are there, some people are getting sick. Others are dying. There are real needs among them. And in the early church, they rose up and they realized that, you know what, the common bond that we share with one another, the unity of the Spirit, the relationship that we have with Jesus far surpasses tangible things. And so they're taking care of of one another. And before I set up a church Craigslist account this week, and and you guys think that I'm going to ask you to start selling stuff so that we can receive money, you don't see this theme moving forward specifically referenced to churches. You see it with the rich young ruler and so forth. So I don't think that we can set a precedence and kind of come up with some crazy teaching on this. Here's the goal. I think the goal is this, for you and I to understand that the Lord gives us things that he entrusts to us, but that the common bond, the strongest bond that we share with one another, not things that we tangibly own or that we we have control of, the common bond is the unity of the Spirit. That this didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like this was being forced down like we see in communism by the apostles. That this was happening from the bottom up. That it was voluntary. That they realized that they loved one another. They cared for one another. They become cognizant of the needs that were among them. Which really shows, going back to the Cornania, that there's 3,000 people there without email, texts, cell phones, and all of the things that we have today. And they do know the needs that are represented among them. That just speaks to the dimension and the relationships that they had to one another. They were caring for real needs. And then it says that the apostles are performing signs and wonders. They're not doing this so that they can stand out or so that people notice them. They're meeting real needs with genuine love. It's just like what Jesus did. It's just like what he called you and I to do. That the apostles are, are performing signs and wonders. Jesus threw them, and they're meeting real needs with genuine love. And the interesting thought to this, as I was, I was thinking about this this week, is that, Zach, I may possess the answer to something that someone in this room is fervently praying for. I think they realized that in the early church, that they're taking care of one another, And that they realize, you know what, I may have the answer to something that someone among us is fervently praying for. And as a result, they were sensitive to that and they were taking care of one another. 
The second piece that we see here is there is this idea of reverential awe. Verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe. The word phobos that we see here is the word that we see in the Bible in the Old Testament for the fear of the Lord. It's not a terrifying fear. It's not a, you know, I'm scared fear. But the fear of the Lord in Job is equated with wisdom. It's equated in Proverbs with knowledge. It's also equated with the hatred of evil in their midst. It says that this fear prolongs life and it provides confidence. That the phobos is a response to the wonders and the signs that were taking place in their midst. That basically there was this reverential awe that they, they respected and they realized that when they came together uh, consistently that there was something very special and significant that the presence of God was doing in their midst and they didn't want to lose that. I think this is something that you and I can pray that the Lord helps us rediscover because we take so many things for granted in our lives. Our teens were getting together last night and Tyler uh, Spalsberry was just sharing about how many times you and I, we just miss the simple miracles that are around us all of the time. This early church understood and they realized and they didn't want to lose that. They never wanted to take the presence and the power of God for granted. Have you ever been, maybe you've prayed for something for a significant period of time and then you find out that the Lord answered that prayer and just the sense of awe and wonder and you're like, God, I don't ever want to take that for granted. Maybe you walk out of a service sometime and you just sense God's presence so strong and you get in the car and you drive home and you're like, I don't, I don't want to lose that. You take that out of a church. You take that out of a life of a believer, the appreciation and the respect and the awe and wonder that they have for the things of God. Things can go south real quick. This early church understood it was this thing that was a characteristic of the early church. And it says that not only did the believers recognize it, but the unbelievers recognized it as well, the apostles and then the ordinary believers as well. And then we see the third characteristic of verse 47, that the people are praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. Why wouldn't they be praising God and celebrating God? They're growing in their relationship with Christ through the teachings and the doctrine of the apostles. They're spending time with one another in each other's homes, and they're growing in, in relationship. The Bible says that they're taking care of one another in this culture of fellowship, and that, that they're growing spiritually, and they're growing relationally. And it says that it's in this context that they're just celebrating what Jesus is doing in their lives. And then in verse 47, this is important. And the Lord added to their number daily. So who builds this church? And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. It just didn't happen one day a week. It's not like, and the Lord added to their number on Sundays. The Lord added to their number on the week. No, every day that the Lord is growing this group of people numerically as Peter preached that message to 3,000 people who was growing the church, it wasn't Peter. The Lord was growing the church. Verse 41, verse 47, the Lord is growing this church. And it's this idea of building versus being. As the worship team comes and we prepare to pray in just a minute. 
You and I need to rediscover this in the 21st century, this idea of building versus being. Because we can get so program-oriented that immediately we hear things like this and we're like, problem, solution. Okay, we need a program for teaching. We need a program for fellowshipping. We need a program for you know, relationship building. We need to put, we, we, and it's like, well, okay, well, we'll set up these three boxes and we'll just try to shove everyone into the three boxes as if we're trying to build something. You and I aren't called to build things. Jesus builds the church. You and I are called to be things. We're called to be people of the word of God. We're called to be people of, of fellowship, koinonia. We're called to be people of prayer. And when you and I do that, the Bible says that Jesus builds the church. And if he builds a church, the Bible says the gates of hell won't prevail against that. Corinthians says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That God gave the increase. If you and I want to try to build something, God will give us what we can build on our own strength. And at the end of the day, I don't think any of us want to be there. But that if you and I commit to be people, that you know what, we are people of the word of God. We develop this kind of relationship. We let our guards down. We break through whatever the barriers are because they're different for all of us. We begin to be people that, per, that prayer is our lifeline. That we never lose this element of, God, we don't want to take for granted what you're doing. We don't ever want to take. That it's in that environment that the Lord says, you know what? 3,000 people are now going to be able to grow in the relationship with Christ in that type of environment. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. God has blessed us tremendously in so many ways. And as we honor him, and we approach the book of Acts and say, Lord, this is our foundation. This is what you've placed in front of us. Lord, we don't want to lose these things in our lives. Lord, we don't want to lose these things in our lives. Would you stand with me today? There are a couple people that are going to come forward on the, on the left and right side. And each week we'll have that either during worship or at the end. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you just to ask this question. Here's the question. Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me through this message? Because this is the neat thing about the Word of God, is that I've shared a lot. But as you ask the Lord, Lord, what is the one piece, what's the one principle in this text that applies to my life? Lord, would you reveal that to me? Would you speak to me? And then more than just saying, well, that was nice. Don't just listen, but what? It's more than just hearing God's Word. How do you respond to that? And the idea of this commitment to being a person of the word of God to this deep, significant, even accountability relationships in our lives, this idea of being people of prayer. Would you just ask that, the Lord that question? Lord, what are you speaking to me through this message today? As Aaron goes back into worship, we're going to have a couple people that will be 
uh, on the right-hand side of the room, left-hand side of the room. And if you want someone just to agree with you together in prayer, you can slip up to them. You can enter into worship for a few minutes before you close. If more people come up, uh, there will be several of us. We'll just come around you. We'll agree with you together in prayer. But let's just respond to the Lord today in worship and in prayer. Lord, we just thank you.